Hey, it's Guy here. And before the show begins, I'm super excited to tell you about a project I've been working on. It's a new kids podcast about science and discovery, and it's called Wow in the World. And it marks the first time in NPR's 47-year history that we're launching a program especially for kids. So if you know a kid between the ages of 5 and 10 who is curious about the world, Check out Wow in the World. You can search for it and subscribe at Apple Podcasts or by visiting npr.org slash wow. Oh, 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 oh. What? I check it out, Joe. I uh, here we go with the flow. It's NPR. I rock it real far, and I don't drive a car. I drive a bicycle, and it's not a tricycle. And my man stretch rocking in a unicycle. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, you got skills, B. Skills. Yo, 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 yo. What's up, everybody? This is Stretch Armstrong. My name is Bobito Garcia, gay cool Bob Love. Welcome to Stretch and Bobito. We're talking about music, art, culture, and everything in between. Ooh-wee! And today's guest will be the one and only Hill Harper. Many of you know him as an actor, but he's so much more than that. The activist, uh, entrepreneur, author, basketball player. This guy has done a lot, and we're about to kick it with him. But, um, Roberto. Yes. What's happening? Stretch, I love your shirt. It's, hey, it's plaid season. Do you like my T-shirt? Did you get that uh, the Knicks' first anniversary? I I that was shirt the announcer. Sixty nine years old. <laughs> I, uh, I I was the first Latino broadcaster in the Knicks' sixty year franchise history. Back in two thousand and six, I was the halftime reporter, and that was incredible because I would interview uh, Patrick Ewing, Dan Marino, Ciara, Mike Rappaport. Fat Joe, whoever was in their celebrity row uh, at halftime. So I got to see the Knicks front row seat. I mean, there is no better seat than what I had that whole entire season. Now, the downside was that that was the year that they broke a franchise record and only won 23 games. (laughs) So we were terrible. And they blamed it on you. (laughs) And then the next year I got fired. (laughs) Stretch, honestly, it's nice to talk to you about basketball. You're so focused on tennis. You're so focused but, on tennis. But I feel like I try to explain some of the recent games that are that have really caught my attention and captured the tennis world, and it just doesn't work. You know the point that you lost me? Uh-oh. No, no, no. You mentioned, I was like, oh, how was the Open? And you were like, oh, man, it was great. But you know what, Bob? I don't know if you would have had a good time. So why you say that? And you said that at matches, people in the audience are not allowed to, ooh, ah, oh, you know. Stretch, I'm an announcer. I'm a ball player from uptown. I play in Harlem. I play in Washington Heights. I, I, I we know can't, this. I know. We can't stay quiet during action. It <laughs> <laughs> sounds like torture to me. It sound, to well, that's why for, I said you wouldn't have fun. You'd be yeah, frustrated. I'd be frustrated. You need to put that energy right. that can't be funneled into a scream. Yes. Into a, you need to internalize it. It's just so. a shadow. It's just a shadow. <laughs> Where's Hill? Is Hill here? Hill, where are you? Paging Hill Harper. <laughs> I found my thrill. I'm Linda Holmes. And I'm Stephen Thompson. 
There's more stuff to watch and read these days than any one person can get to. That's why we make Pop Culture Happy Hour. Twice a week, we sort through the nonsense, share reactions, and give you the lowdown on what's worth your precious time and what's not. Find Pop Culture Happy Hour on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Red Bull Radio. Whether it's the latest dancehall out of Kingston, techno from Berlin, underground hip-hop, or old soul gems, Red Bull Radio is the place to tune in and discover great music that's new to you. With in-depth interviews and live performances from festivals around the globe, plus music handpicked by influential artists, journalists, and DJs, you'll know what you're looking for when you hear it. Listen at RedBullRadio.com. Oh, yeah. And we're back, people. Uh, ha, 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 ha. And today we're in conversation with actor Hill Harper. He played crime scene investigator Dr. Sheldon Hawks on CSI New York for nine seasons. Woo-wee! <laughs> Hill, not yet, chill. Okay, sorry. He's had roles in dozens of films, including Spike Lee's Get On The Bus, and He Got Game. In fact, weren't the two of you in a film together? Yes. Yes, a classic. <laughs> <laughs> one of the great cult classics. <laughs> it's one of the best sports movies ever made. Well, he's so much more than an actor, activist. Harper has a law degree from Harvard University. Basketball player, former teammate of President Obama. Ooh. <laughs> How does that sound? <laughs> this guy has done a lot, and I don't think we've covered even half of his resume, but we got to start the show. Welcome, Hill. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs> You know, we actually were in a film, as Stretch mentioned earlier at the top of the show. Yes. Uh, originally called Full Core Press. Mm-hmm. Full Core Press eventually got released years later as a film called 30 Days. And, um, you know, it's not going to win any awards or anything like that. But one thing I appreciate about you particularly is that not many actors who are cast in lead roles of films surrounding basketball can actually play. You played with and against someone who became a very special person in this world, President Barack Obama, while you were at Harvard. So when you first met him on the court, were you serving him up? Was he serving you up? Was he giving you buckets? No, no, no. You got (laughs) to- He said no, 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 no. Was he a hog? Was he a bar? No, no, no. Actually, a couple, uh, let me me go, go in reverse order. Number one, I think you can tell a lot about a person by the way they play any any team sport. Absolutely. Particularly basketball because it's glaring. And are you the type of person who gets other players involved? You know, plays actually plays defense, tries to help out on defense, tries to make the team better. Or are you a ball hog who doesn't play defense, doesn't care, and, mm-hmm. and then calls ticky tack fouls? He was definitely somebody who wanted the team to be great, wanted to make the the, the, the team better, play defense. You know, the person that he is that we see now is the same person he 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 was on the court. Now that being said, he's older than me. You know, he's like six, six and a half years old than me. And, you know, I was quick, you know, and I played college football. You know, I mean, I'm an athlete. Even though he's taller than me and had longer arms, it'd be like me playing stretch. It just wouldn't be fair. <laughs> stretch is taller than me and has longer arms, but there's a skill level that's required. Yeah, yeah. And so, so it, that's the same thing. Now, what's difficult about him to guard, let's be real clear, is that since he's a lefty with long arms, it's deceptive because you get so used to guarding people right-handed and so it's that sneaks up on you a little bit but the most important basketball game that he and I ever played together um well arguably we played two very important basketball games one is a game that not very many people know about at all 
when we were in school at Harvard, I had gotten a letter from a brother who was incarcerated. And this is way before I was going to do any work or even thinking about doing work in the criminal justice system or in the prison system. And uh, he was like, he's like, man, how come you Harvard Negroes don't ever help us dudes in prison? Mm. And I was like, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, but but so I said, call me, you know, so he, he called me and we would talk and, you know, he, you know, toll free calls. And we just started talking and building and talking and building. And I was like, man, what do you like to do? And he's like, I like to play basketball. I said, I like to play basketball. <laughs> he said, well, I said, why don't we play? OK, I said, I'll call the warden. So I called the warden and I said, warden, I'm from student, you know, Harvard. and I'd like to arrange a basketball game at the prison. What are you talking about? We've never done anything like that. What? I was like, well, so needless to say, fast forward, we get the game arranged. The whole prison shows up for it. The whole court is and lined is up. You and, and, and it's me and Barack Obama. Barack Obama and some other cats. <laughs> and we drive out. I remember renting a van to drive everybody out there. We drive out there, and the whole prison is stopped. Because, and everyone's be- we're warming up, and people are like, hey, 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 you any good? Because I'm betting, I'm betting, man. I'm betting on this. You know, so I said, I said, listen, you watch us warm up and you make your best decision. And uh, and the president actually jokes about it. He says, um, yeah, I asked the guy that was guarding me, you know, what he did, what he was in for. He said, double murder. I stopped shooting. Yeah. <laughs> so, so he remembers that. And he's, he's, he says it's the first, first person he'd ever visited. And then. Mm-hmm. What's just so historic about it to me is that he's the first sitting president to actually visit a prison. These cats who played against him don't know that they played against a future president. And if you talk about the story of black men in America, you know, you take one man and change a couple different circumstances in his life, and he's the one in prison. And you change a couple different circumstances of the cat who's in prison's life, and he's the one that may be running for president. And that's just the reality of where we are in this country. I guess that's as good a segue as any into criminal justice and some of the work you've been doing in that chamber. If you want to speak on that, we'd love to hear it. Well, the real work I've been doing is more bottom up. And we hear people talking about we're 5% of the world's population, but 25% of the world's inmates. We're the only country in the world that will give life sentences to juveniles. So when we, we we hear all these numbers, what gets lost, though, are the individuals, these people that with real names and prison ID numbers and family back home. So I wanted to do empowerment work around that. So the prisons I visit, I really try to do empowerment work because it's the work I do on the outside. It's the same. And that's why I wrote Letters to an Incarcerated Brother, which is just basically a motivational book. Anybody could read that book, whether you're in prison or out of prison. Mm-hmm. It's just a it's a standard motivational book. But but I specifically wanted to write it for, for, for young men and young women that were incarcerated because they need a book for them. And um, that's the work I've been doing. And I'm proud of it. You should be. You should be. I was watching a talk you gave, and in it you were talking about how the publishers didn't actually want to greenlight a book. Geared um, towards young Latino and African-American men. Because they don't don't read, they don't buy books. Exactly. But the book actually became a New York Times bestseller. Tremendous success. Yeah. And it just goes to show you that we have these institutions, and whether you want to call it institutional racism or institutional prejudice or whatever. What was the other one? Uh, Subconscious bias. Subconscious (laughs) bias. Exactly. That's the the polite term people want to use, right? They want want to water it down. Say, it's just subconscious bias. It's easy to, to blame the audience. And if you say, you know what? 
none of our data shows that young Latino or African-American men are reading our books. Okay, you're right. Your data shows that because you're not publishing books that they're interested in reading. What about that? For you to make the leap that they're not reading your books means they're not readers, you're wrong. They're reading Sports Illustrated, Source Magazine, they're online, Complex, whatever. They're reading. What about finding authors, people who have a voice that could speak to them? Let's do that. Let's actually mine this community where we aren't getting getting revenue. Well, I think the other part of that, too, is not just uh, the narrative, but it's also the marketing, right? So they may not believe that people of color are reading, particularly in, in a, the youthful community. But if they are picking authors, like I'm a published author, Stretch is about to be one as well, you are, um, it's what effort is put in to have that voice reach the right audience, yes. a diversified audience as well. So it's like it's a, it's a, a two-sided coin. Um, I and agree. I, I, you know, applause to you for all you've done in, in that space. And it's, it's, uh, it's inspiring, bro. So Hill, I want to I want to take it back. Um, okay. Stretch and I were were exploring your your deep resume, your deep history, and um, I'll be honest with you, I've only met one person who was born and raised in Iowa. Okay. And he happens to be African American as well. I imagine there is a strong, probably small community of African Americans, but at this point, you're 50 years old. You are a prominent voice and an activist and beyond. What developed this sort of sensibility? In Iowa. Okay. Well, it's, that's an interesting question. First of all, I think that we all develop our sensibilities or connectedness or, or, or just things that we're passionate about through our families, you know, in whatever ways. And then our communities. Families first, communities second, you know, maybe education and maybe experiences. And, and it kind of goes that way. My grandfather in Iowa, Harry D. Harper Sr., was the head of the Iowa NAACP during the whole civil rights movement. Dope. Amazing story about my family's history in this small town of Fort Madison, Iowa, is that my great-grandfather was a dude who did all the pipes and the waterworks, right? But he wanted his, his kids to be professionals. He really wanted them to be doctors. And so he had uh, five boys. And as one went off to med school at Howard University, our, you know, historically black college in Washington, D.C., H-U, the Bisons. As one went off, one would come back and pay for the next one to go. And one would come back, pay for the next one to go. So they all went. They all went. And my grandfather and his brother opened up a small little family medical practice in Fort Madison. The banks at the time would not take his money. Even though Iowa, you know, wasn't part of Jim Crow officially, we know Jim Crow states did not have a monopoly on on racist behavior, right? Sure. And sure. so they wouldn't take his money. The Great Depression happened. People needed cash. They had cash. They bought up a city block in Iowa and they opened a black hospital. And uh, that black medical facility served the black community for states all around because he set up a obstetrician practice where he was delivering babies. And and really incredible that, that, that these black women from four states around would come to him and have their, have their children delivered here in this little hospital. So my family goes way back in Iowa. And there are, there are very distinct black communities throughout Iowa. Midwestern roots. Amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's cool. Tom Arnold's from Iowa. Not so cool. 
I like Tom Hardy. <laughs> I'm not saying this anything. But Ashton Kutcher's from Iowa. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know who Ashton Kutcher is? Robert. I don't. One of the things I love about Bob is that he has his own filter when it comes to popular culture, and TV doesn't really play a big role in that. No offense to the TV actors out there. (laughs) None taken. (laughs) I also do theater and film as well, so thank you. Um, You can catch me then. But but pivoting to TV, on CSI, you played law enforcement. Yes. You know, how was playing the role of of an officer informed your ideas uh, or changed your ideas about law enforcement or or, or did it not at all? It informed it a great deal because... um, over the course of doing that show for nine years, and I'd played other law enforcement, you know, as well in my career, I've met so many cops and worked with them and scout followed them and had to ride in the back of cars just trying to learn and going to morgues and doing all these different things. And most cops are good cops, you know. They want to do a good job. They want to do it the right way. They got into it for the right reasons. They got families. They come from communities. The biggest problem we've put our officers in in this country is military-style systems of policing. You're setting them up to fail because you're putting them in the wrong system. First of all, we should have community policing. You should be required, like back in the day, to live in the community that you patrol and police. Most of the communities and most of the officers that we've seen we have problems with, they're from communities that are an hour away, hour and a half, and they come in Mm -hmm. to basically patrol this foreign area, which they have no no context in. And so there's that just the system itself, changing the system and keeping the exact same officers with better training would solve a number of our issues. These these people aren't being taught how, they're not being and, and they're not being held accountable. One of the number one ways to curb police behavior is, Bobito, I'm going to test you. What would you say would probably be the number one way to to curb individual police conduct? Compassion. No. Replace most of the DAs and change change out the the types of DAs that we have in place. Because if DAs stop prosecuting these bad pickups, cops will stop doing these stops. And bad pickups, just because they don't want to just do paperwork all the time for someone's going to get released the next day, right? So stop prosecuting those bad pickups. Start prosecuting officers that that act poorly, right? So it's a double-sided whammy. If you actually have a DA in place that'll prosecute cops, bad cops, cops will start checking their own behavior. Clearly, a lot more that we can be talking about. Yeah. Um, hopefully, we'll, we'll have you again. But oh, we're done but, already? No. No, we're Coming up, it's time for the impression session. We'd like to say a quick thank you and share a message from one of our sponsors, Stoke Cold Brew Coffee. At Stoke, they recognize that not every bean measures up. Stoke is steeped at cool temperatures for at least 10 hours to achieve a smooth taste. It's slow brewed like all the best ideas. Stoke Cold Brew Coffee. Look at you go. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Red Bull Radio. Whether it's the latest dancehall out of Kingston, techno from Berlin, underground hip-hop, or old soul gems, Red Bull Radio is the place to tune in and discover great music that's new to you. With in-depth interviews and live performances from festivals around the globe, plus music handpicked by influential artists, journalists, and DJs, you'll know what you're looking for when you hear it. Listen at RedBullRadio.com.
Bong, 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 bong. Stretch, it's time for the special part of the show. The impression session. Yes! Where we play music for our guests. We play it and they say it. There it is. Okay. All right, Stretch, I think you got, you said you have a song queued up for uh, Hill that you selected for him? I do. It's on the turntable. Let's rock. A better man with the kindness that to give. I know we can make it. I know darn well we can work it out. Yes, we can. I know we can. Yes, 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 we that that or that church organ with just one single tone. And, and well, you're on the money because this is New Orleans. It's New Orleans. Okay. It's 1971. Lee Dorsey. And Lee Dorsey. This made this was made famous by by the Pointer Sisters. Right. But that is and, the original. And they they did that song after him in '74. Right. Yes, we can can. Yes, we can can. And so, what what does the yes we can can? Well, obviously. <laughs> Come on, Hill, yes, help us can. out. I'm helping. You. <laughs> Wait, let me. So si you're si si se puede. Si se puede. Si se puede. <laughs> so the si se puede, the yes we can. I remember eight years ago, uh, the presidential election, November eighth. That very day. Um, we played basketball. I played basketball with the president. A group of us played basketball at Michael Jordan's gym in Southside Chicago um, for good luck. We played basketball mm. for good luck. And John McCain had joked with him in one of the debates where he called him that one. It was either this one or that one. And, and the T-shirts we had at the basketball, it was the Obama symbol with a finger, like as if it was spitting on the finger. And it said that one. You know? <laughs> and no one knew what was going to happen or the results. But so many people worked so hard to say, yes, we can. And and the beautiful thing is, yes, we did. And, and But it doesn't stop. We got to keep boots on the ground and doing the work every day because... It's not just about one election day. It's about all of us, and, and the we part is the most thing. Yes, we. We is us. It's not who we elect. It's actually we, the people. And we can do this. We can. This country is the greatest country in the world because it's a participatory democracy, but it only works if we participate. And too many great people I know are sitting out. And I'm not just saying on voting day. I'm talking about every day, making your community better, making your families better, making all this, loving each other. Yeah, yeah. What's your song? My song is, I'm not going to tell you what it is. Okay. You may not even recognize it because mm. it's new. It's new. Hit it, Stretch! Not MTV, but my sweet 16s. Married the mic, I love supreme. I'm clear it was a miracle the way I wedded the rhythm. Spiritual looking back at it, a lyrical exorcism. I had for the Afro-American dream to rap for. Quarterback for a professional team. I'm still standing. Yeah, I'm still here. I'm still standing. So, still standing to me means for, uh, when I hear that, is that, you know, I've been doing what I've been doing a long time, and I'm going to keep doing it. I've so, been so blessed, man. I've been so blessed to be able to do what I do as an artist, as an advocate, as a writer, as an actor. And this is what I do full time. You know, so many people who, who want to do what we do, 
they're they're forced into a way that they have to do something else to make a living and then do what they do on the side, which is great too because just having the the blessing. I mean, you know, it's like we're talking about champagne problems because you know, ninety percent of the rest of the world can't even have off hours to make music, you know, or or read a rhyme or or do a play because they're struggling in ways that 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 are, that are horrific. And so, I've just been so blessed and fortunate. And to be still standing, you know, I was diagnosed with cancer in 2010. My father's gone from cancer. My grandfather's gone from cancer. But it's not even just about cancer health. It's just about being a black man in America. It's also about just being able to do what I do and having longevity. And so, uh, you know, I've been been at I've been here for 50. I'm going to be here for minimum 50 more. And uh, as much as I've done in these first 50, I'm going to do double down and do twice as much in the next. Or I mean, that's, yeah. <laughs> well, you, listen, you sound 60 and you look 30. <laughs> <laughs> no, but not for nothing. I, I picked out the Farrell Munch. That's who the artist was. Oh, Farrell yeah, Farrell Munch. Munch uh, who I know you know. Yes. And a member of Organized one, one of our favorites. One of, of our supreme uh, favorites, right? Yes. And Jill Scott actually sings the, the chorus. Really? When you heard uh, in the background. Later what, on, she has a little bit of a solo. What year is that? The, that only came like three years ago. Yeah, so it, it's something that sh- you should put on your radar. AKA new for us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's beautiful, man. You know, powerful record and um, and Hill, you're a powerful human being, man. We got nothing but love for you, hey, right? Hey, fellas, uh, same here. And anything I can do to support whatever you're doing, we all have to figure out ways to work together. And, I mean and, that sincerely. So let me know how I can help support whatever. Or thank car- you, and, carte blanche. And, and likewise, yeah. you ever need thank us for, yeah, yeah. for anything. Or, okay. So yeah. that's a wrap, yo. Thanks, Hill. Yes, yes, Thanks thank you. Through. That's our show. This podcast was produced by Sammy Yenigan, edited by Steve Nelson and Nigeri Eaton, and executive produced by Abby O'Neill. Special thanks to our VP of Programming, Anya Grunman. If you like the show, you should check out our interviews with Mahershala Ali and Dave Chappelle. Listen on Apple Podcasts, NPR One, or wherever you get your podcasts.